Vorher, Stefana. Um, this morning, we, we're actually going to be starting into the book of Haggai. And if you've been with us over the couple of weeks, last couple of weeks, going through Nahum, I'm going to follow the same format I did with Nahum. The first week, we're going to unpack a little bit of the historical significance of what was going on at the time, along with kind of the big picture of what the book is about. And then next week, I'll go deeper into Haggai as I did last week with Nahum. So this time, I thought instead of going back to uh, I want to go actually right back to almost the beginning, back to Genesis, back to the formation of Israel. Now, for those of you who may not know, Israel is actually the name of a person. His name was Jacob. And in uh, an instant incident in the book of Genesis, he encounters God and has a bit of a wrestle with him. And then afterwards, God says this. He says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel because you have struggled with God and with, with humans and have overcome. So Jacob gets a new name, and that name is Israel. Now, over time, Jacob has a total of 12 sons, and it's what we call today the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, he had uh, two wives and two maids, or the maids were for his wives. So Leah was the first wife he had, which he really didn't want. Um, and he had six sons with her, which is really interesting because of all the sons, Jesus chose that lineage from Leah rather than from Jacob's favorite, Rachel, who he married after Leah, of which Joseph and Benjamin were born. And also Rachel's maid and Leah's maid, they had a couple of kids each. All up, it gave us the 12 sons, right? Now, of these 12 tribes, one is not actually considered a tribe, but it's the, um, the priesthood of Israel. And that was the Levites, the, the, the descendants of Levi. So they never got an allotment of land. They got to live in Israel and the rest of the uh, tribes, the other 11, paid a certain amount of money to support the Levites. Their main primary function was the priesthood. Now, Joseph, uh, he had two sons, and so what happened then is Manasseh and Ephraim, they were incorporated into the 12 tribes, and so by uh, the time the land was divided, the, uh, Canaan, the Holy Land, was divided into 12 tribes, these were the 10 tribes, minus Levi, but adding in Manasseh and Ephraim for Joseph. Does that all make sense? <laughs> There's a whole book on this. Actually, there's several books on this. <laughs> when you read the Bible, this whole breakup of what's going on. But what I wanted to do is before they came to the Holy Land, this is kind of what the world looked like at the time in their area. Egypt was the primary empire. This is at the height of the Egyptian empire. This is at the height of its power. And we had other forces in the area, the Hittite empire, which in the future would be uh, destroyed by the Assyrians. You could see the little Assyrian state there and then the Babylonians as well. Those three in particular, uh, the Hittites, the, uh, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, would fight constantly with each other and quite a lot with Egypt at the time. But Egypt, uh, this would have been at the time when the Israelites were actually slaves in Egypt. But by the time we get to um, the conquest, the, the, the um, book of Joshua where they take over 
Canaan and divided amongst themselves, this is what it ends up kind of looking like. The 12 tribes getting their land allotments in, in the promised land. Um, and as you can see, they're all 12, they all get their land, Levites don't get it because they can travel with everywhere. Um, but then, as we saw last week when we were reading about Nahum, in 722 uh, BC, the Assyrians come down and attack. Uh, this is what happened after the death of King Solomon. Of course, brothers fight and these guys fought. Two tribes stayed in the south, Judah assimilated Simeon, and in the north, the ten tribes kind of went on their own. But after the conquest of Assyria, um, what happened then was, um, well, Judah was left on their own. So this was at the point when we were reading last week from Nahum. So you can imagine how Judah might have felt during this time. Their brothers to the north are gone. Now, we do talk about the, ten tri- the lost ten tribes of Israel. Uh, it's not technically true. Uh, a number of the people in Israel in, the, in those ten tribes did actually escape south to Judah. Uh, Judah itself has Simeon, has some Levites. You might hear, when you read the New Testament, you might hear about the Benjamites as well, Paul being one of them. So they didn't necessarily completely disappear, but what happened was people just don't know where they've gone. The main trunk of them are gone. And all that was left was really Judah, which is why we refer to the Israelites today as the Jews. They're from Judah. In fact, when Israel was forming its state, there was a big debate amongst them of whether they call it Israel or Judah. Um, In the end, they decided to go with Israel because they wanted to leave the door open for anyone who may have had um, some sort of Israeli blood in them to come back home. Uh, So that was uh, an interesting um, time, uh, 1948. So anyway, 650 BC, Nahum, he does his thing, um, warns, what's going to happen to Assyria, and in fact, in 612 BC, Babylon rises up and destroys Assyria. Um, And so Babylon did what they had to do. According to Nahum, that was the hand of God that moved Babylon against uh, Assyria. Interestingly enough, 24 years after that, according to the prophets, God moved Babylon to take over and destroy Judah. So Solomon's temple at this point is completely destroyed. Jerusalem itself is completely uh, laid to waste and the people are taken into captivity. You can read a bit about it in the book of Daniel. There's quite a bit about what life was like in uh, Babylon at that time. Um, The Babylonian Empire itself was quite large. It didn't last very long. It wasn't like the Assyrians. They were always a thorn in the Assyrian sides, but as an empire, they were very regional it was only in this period of history that Babylon, you know, really just kind of came to the fore. And it took over Assyria, it took over what was remnant of the Hittite Empire, and it even defeated the Egyptians, though they didn't actually take over Egypt itself. They do get a quite a bad rap in the Bible, mainly because of the book of Revelation and some of the prophecies in, in Daniel. But as a people group, they weren't any bad or worse. Well, I would argue, actually, they weren't anywhere near as bad as the Assyrians. And a lot of the archaeological evidence seems to point that way. The Babylonians, they took the Israelites into captivity. There's this lovely um, archaeological find that you can see again at the British Museum. This is a stone tablet that was found in the region where Babylonia is now, uh, in southern Iraq. 
And that is, um, it might look gibberish to you, but that's uh, an ancient language called Akkadian, a language spoken by the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And on this tablet, it states the amount of cattle and produce that the Babylonians brought back with them from Judah, along with a whole lot of slaves, which I thought was kind of neat to show you all that. But going on, 586 BC, Babylon destroys Judah, and about 50 odd years later, something bigger happens. But the question I always ask was, well, what happened to Judah while it was destroyed? I mean, it didn't exist anymore. What happened to the people that were in the countryside? Not those who were in Jerusalem who were taken away. Well, the people in the countryside, they ran for the hills because they were afraid that the Babylonians would come after them. They mixed with the peoples in the north who were peoples that were transported there by the Assyrians when they took over the northern tribes. And they become known in the New Testament as the Samaritans. One of the reasons why the Samaritans were looked down upon was because they mixed with foreigners and their blood became mixed to the point where people couldn't tell who they were and where they were from. And they stayed away from Judah because they were fearful of what had happened in the past and they set themselves up in Samaria and in the New Testament we know them as the Samaritans. But anyway, moving on. In about 40 to 50 years after they were taken, um, the Babylonian Empire collapsed. Uh, The uh, Persian and Medes rose up against them. And the Bible makes it sound like it happened overnight, but there was a lot more going on. There was a battle. um, But the Persians literally take over Babylonia. And the first one of the first things they do is they send the remnant of the Jews, or were held in captivity, back to Judah. And here we read it in Isaiah chapter 45. It says this, This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored up in secret places so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel who summons you by name for the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. This is an interesting passage because it was used for a president in the United States recently. He was looked upon as being a Cyrus. Cyrus himself um, did uh, an amazing thing. He allowed the Jews to go back home and he allowed them to operate in a kind of puppet state. They were still under the Persian Empire, but they were able to live within their land, rebuild their city, and to do their own thing. Pretty cool. So that's about 538 BC when the first exiles return to Jerusalem. And then it's where we get to now, about 520 BC is where Haggai comes into play. The fascinating thing for me about Haggai is he's one of the last guys you hear from before we get any more writings in the Bible. There's not many, or there's not much at all after him. It's at a time when for about 400 years the Bible goes silent and then all of a sudden you open up to the Gospels. Uh, So I find it fascinating to read what the last words are 
in this Old Testament. Of course, there are other things that are happening after Haggai. After Haggai, you've got Ezra, who comes with the second wave. And if you read in the book of Ezra, they come into Judah uh, to uh, rebuild um, the city and, and, and stuff. And then, of course, the last guy in the third wave is Nehemiah. And you can read that in the book of Nehemiah, 445 BC. Now, we're not just going to stop there. I'm going to give you a little bit of Persian history so that you can understand why and what is going on. And it's really in between this 18-year period because the first exiles go back and there's a lot happened in Persia during this time. You know, uh, Dar, um, Cyrus dies and his son, Cambyses II, takes over. And he doesn't live as long as his father, really. He dies and this interesting civil war kind of breaks out. If you into history, this is a great story about this guy, Bardia. He was uh, the son of Cyrus, but people question whether he really was the son or not. And to this day, a lot of historians kind of question over whether he's validity or not. Um, but he didn't last long because he died within the first year. And a general by the name of Darius, a Persian general who defeated the Egyptians, he becomes the new Persian king. And it's a new line that now comes into play, which at the time worried a lot of people because, well, it's not a kingly line, it's a general line. Is he going to use military power? But rather than doing that, he actually allows more people to go back to their lands. Um, and this is where we pick up the story in Haggai. Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. <laughs> um, yeah, try saying that backwards twice. Uh, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, uh, the high priest. Now, these two guys are fascinating. Zerubbabel is actually uh, a, a descendant of King David, and Joshua is the descendant of David's high priest, Jehozadak. So there is a continual lineage here of kings that may not have been in place but now are kind of getting back into that little lineage that was happening before the whole mess of what was going on before that. So we see this continual line now coming back into play. Zerubbabel, who actually happens to be a descendant of Jesus as well in his bloodline, but also of King David and Joshua being part of that priestly line, the Levites, still in place doing his job. Now, going on, it says this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? I find it amazing. The difference, one of the big differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament is this. Very rarely do you see God's words in quotation marks in the New Testament. You see it relatively often in the Old Testament. And so what happens in the New Testament is we begin to debate, is this really Paul talking or God talking? Here you can't debate it at all. The prophet is saying, this is what God is saying, inverted commas, boom. 
Okay, I guess I better take note of this one. How do I weasel my way out of this comment? How can I turn this around? Because this is actually quite pointed. I love Haggai for how much he might be speaking 3,000 years ago, but he is so on the point for us today. Paneled homes required quite a lot of work. You needed to get wood, and most of the wood came from the north, from, from Lebanon. It required a bit of money, quite a lot of time. In 18 years that they've been back in Jerusalem, they've all built their homes up, but they just didn't build their homes up. They ended up uh, adding in the ducted air conditioning units, the surround sound, home pods, the whole thing, right? They're building their specs up on their house. They're doing the added additional options to their homes to make it more comfortable. And God says this thing, is it time for you yourselves to be living in these penal homes while my house remains a mess? Now, let me try to bring that into today's speak. I've had at least two or three people leave us as a fellowship and who have told me, God's not about a building, he's about people. And I don't disagree with them. But here in quotation marks is God saying something that might just not feel very comfortable for us today. I'm 25 years in pastoring. And I can tell you church buildings are a pain. They're hard to keep up. This one in particular, this is the worst of the lot. Anyone who's on the finance team who've been there, no. Well, I mean, it's just like, oh my goodness, what's, what's broken now? But I remember Christchurch earthquakes. We had three buildings. Two of them were, were I think, at about 7 or 8% of the earthquake code. It was a write-off. And people in our church saying, well, it's still standing. What's the problem? You're going to run to the Earthquake Commission because there's a crack in the corner of your little and get your whole house repainted and God's place is just going to be crumbled because we can manage that. Most of the times when people tell me, oh, it's not about buildings, it's about people, I don't think some of those people don't even care about buildings. They're more worried about how much money do you want me to be dropping into this place because I've got my own issues that I need to look after. It's, it's kind of confronting, isn't it? God is actually being right on point here. And I don't think it's all about buildings personally. Well, we need a space. But if this was your home, your home, you'd be treating it much differently than the church. And that's where God is getting at here. If this is a space for God's people to come together, then treat it like you treat your home. Because it seems like you're more interested in paneling your houses than you are in what's meaningful to God. Confronting, isn't it? Believe me, I, I own a home. So my first thought is, I've got to fix the fence in the backyard. I've got to deal with some, uh, uh, oh, 
not some, Monica will get to tell you all the issues that we need to work through, whether it's, you know, upgrading stuff or trying to build stuff up, whatever it might be. And you get so caught into that, that our money, our time, our effort goes into that. God's not saying it's not a problem. It's a problem having paneled homes. He's saying you're neglecting me. It's no problem if you need to work a lot. It's no problem if you want to just chill for a bit. That's all good. But if the chilling and the working too much is taking over your time with God, putting him maybe number two, number three, that's a problem. Now let's be a little bit more, less literal. If I were to translate it for us today, even more so, why is it so difficult for us to go to church on a Sunday morning at 10 o'clock? Why is that such an issue to take out an hour and a half of our week to just be together and worship God? Where, where does our time go that an hour and a half a week is not good enough for him? Or we put it on our terms while we're paneling our houses. These are the challenges that the God, our God, the God of Israel, is challenging his people with. Where is your heart? Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says, and I love this because it's the best warning I don't know, anyone? He says this, I'll read it and then I'll give careful thought to your ways. My father used to have this knack with me when I was a kid. He didn't really have to say much, but it'll be that sentence that wasn't perceived really by anyone else as being a threat, but to me it was a total threat, right? Anyone had that feeling with their parents? Oh yeah, okay, here's some of you going, yeah. My dad would just kind of give me that look and you go, Really? And I knew that it wasn't uh, a question he wanted me to answer. But boy, it would say, and this is what God said, give careful thought to your ways. It's like, boom. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. It's, 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 he's not giving us an option here. It doesn't sound like to me. This is a dad response, right, to, to his kids who are just not maybe doing what he feels they need to be focused on. Give thought to your ways. And then he goes on, you've planted much but harvested little, you eat but never have enough, you drink but never have your fill, you put on clothes but they're not warm, you earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Give careful thoughts to your ways. Going on, after he says that, from verses 7 to 11, This is what the Lord Almighty says, just in case you didn't get the warning the first time. Let me say again, give careful thoughts to your ways. Let me just reiterate this. I'm going to try and be nice about this because as we read last week, God is actually slow to anger. So he's going to try and give us as much opportunity to deal with this as as he can. Go up into the mountain, bring down the timber and build my house that I may take pleasure in it and be honest, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Again, it's, 
I love the minor prophets. They don't mess around. They don't go into long explanations as poor old Paul does sometimes in the New Testament, trying to help us understand. They're just straight to the point. Because of my house, which remains a mess, while you go around doing your own things, what does building the temple do for God? What's the point of building this house for God? It's really simple. He says it up the top here, so that I may take pleasure in it and be on it. Think about that for a moment. This is God talking, inverted commas. So I may take pleasure in it and be on it. So yes, God is all about people. But there is a part of him where he does take pleasure and he wants to be honoured in a space and place. It may not be a temple today, but it certainly is a space and place as Paul unpacks in the New Testament, when two or three come in my name, there I am. And so in this space, we come to honour God. Why? To bring him pleasure and to honour him. Not because of what we need. I need my spiritual fix for the week. That's not what Sunday morning service is about. It's not about you getting your fix. I mean, I've, I've been, I've said this many times. Here is where you come to get tuned up to go face the rest of the week. But your tune up is not so that you can be better. So that you can be connected back to God through worship. So how does how do the Israelites respond to this? Well, the two of them, the leaders, get together, the whole remnant of the people. They obey his voice and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord had God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Um, it's fascinating, this word fear. It's different from then when it is today. We don't talk about fear the way the ancients talk about fear. Fear is more reverence understanding someone is greater, bigger, whereas today it can kind of feel like it's a horror movie. Someone who has authority and power over me to destroy me, well, sure, God's God, right? But that's not the point of what we're talking about here. Fear is out of reverence, knowing he is God. So on the 21st of September, 520 B.C., the Haggai's message is accepted and the Lord responds to the people, I am with you, declares the Lord. 21st of September is the date that we know today when the rebuilding of the temple began. Now, the fascinating part is that Haggai is not just chapter one. So you almost want to wonder what is going on after this. It's the same issues that keep cropping up. What is more of a priority to you? God or you? Your empire or God's kingdom? What I need from life or what God needs from you? Now, these are the things and the challenges that we face every day as Christians, and this is what we face in the book of Haggai. Because actually, as human beings, we're no different today than what we were 3,000 years ago. We were challenged by the same things. We may not have Facebook. We may not have mobile phones. We may not have AI back then. 
But there were other things that occupied us that took us away. Panelled homes, for example, was a thing. I guess it still is a thing, I don't know. People panel their homes. But other things. That's the challenge of this opening chapter of the book of Haggai. In a world where empires come and go, as great and as big as they are, they come, they might shine for a little bit, but they disappear. And the one thing that remains is God, all the way through. And so the challenge he has for us today is, are your panel homes, your jobs, your lives more important taking over, taking away from God. And don't be quick to jump at the fact that God is not about buildings. He most certainly is. But he is certainly all about people as well. (laughs) Amen? (laughs) Kind of gives you a different spin on buildings and God's pleasure of them so that he may be honoured. May you be challenged this morning, and I pray that (laughs) the word is always challenging, but you may go away from here being challenged in a positive way to rethink what areas of your life have taken over that little time God is asking you to be with him, that little space that he wants in your life. And what are things maybe garnering more attention for him than him? Ask our music team to come up. Let's pray. Father God, thank you, Lord. Uh, forgive us, Father. We've, we've ignored the minor prophets for a long time, Lord. We, we love to go to those big books, the book of Romans or the Gospels, or dare I say even Revelation, and yet the heavy truth, the the heart issues, they really do come out in your prophets, Lord, who long ago spoke to us, Lord, and that you saw fit to have as part of your word in our Bible. I pray, Lord, as we are challenged by Haggai, yeah, Lord, that, that, that you do tug our hearts. What are the things that are taking us away from you? What, what are the things that... Uh, that seem to just take all our attention, all our money, all our mind. Help us, Lord, to be refocused back to you. Help us, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name.